0: Chapter 5 of The Mystery of 31 New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Mystery of 31 New Inn by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter 5 Jeffrey Blackmore's Will. My arrival at Thorndike's chambers was not unexpected, having been heralded by a premonitory postcard. The oak was open, and an application of the little brass knocker of the inner door immediately introduced my colleague himself and a very hearty welcome. At last, said Thorndyke, you have come forth from the house of bondage. I began to think that you had taken up your abode in Kennington for good. I was beginning myself to wonder when I should escape, but here I am, and I may say at once that I am ready to shake the dust of general practice off my feet forever—that is, if you are still willing to have me as your assistant." "'Willing!' exclaimed Thorndyke. Barkas himself was not more willing than I. You will be invaluable to me. Let us settle the terms of our comradeship forthwith." and tomorrow we will take measures to enter you as a student of the inner temple. Shall we have our talk in the open air in the spring sunshine? I agreed readily to his proposal, for it was a bright, sunny day, and warm for the time of year, the beginning of April. We descended to the walk, and thence slowly made our way to the quiet court behind the church, where poor old Oliver Goldsmith lies, as he would surely have wished to lie, in the midst of all that had been dear to him in his checkered life. I need not record the matter of our conversation. To Thorndyke's proposals I had no objections to offer but my own unworthiness and his excessive liberality. A few minutes our covenants fully agreed upon, and when Thorndyke had noted the points on a slip of paper, signed and dated it and handed it to me, the business was at an end. There. My colleague said, with a smile as he put away his pocket book. If people would only settle their affairs in that way, a good part of the occupation of lawyers would be gone. Brevity is the soul of wit, and the fear of simplicity is the beginning of litigation. And now, I said, I propose that we go and feed. I will invite you to lunch to celebrate our contract. My learned junior is premature, he replied. I had already arranged a little festivity, or rather had modified one that was already arranged. You remember Mr. Marchmont, the solicitor? Yes. He called this morning to ask me to lunch with him and with a new client at the Cheshire Cheese. I accepted and notified him that I should bring you. Why the Cheshire Cheese, I asked. Why not? Marchmont's reasons for the selection were, first, that his client has never seen an old-fashioned London tavern, and second, that this is Wednesday and he, Marchmont, has a gluttonous affection for a really fine beefsteak pudding. You don't object, I hope. Oh, not at all. In fact, now that you mention it, my own sensations incline me to sympathize with Marchmont. I breakfasted rather early. Then come, said Thorndyke. The assignation is for one o'clock, and... If we walk slowly, we shall just hit it off." We sauntered up Inner Temple Lane, and, crossing Fleet Street, headed sedately for the tavern. As we entered the quaint Old World dining-room, Thorndyke looked round, and a gentleman who was seated with a companion at a table in one of the little boxes or compartments rose and saluted us. "'Let me introduce you to my friend, Mr. Stephen Blackmore,' he said as we approached. Then. Turning to his companion, he introduced us by our respective names. "I engaged this box," he continued, "so that we might be private if we wished to have a little preliminary chat. Not that beefsteak pudding is a great help to conversation, but when people have a certain business in view their talk is sure to drift towards it, sooner or later." Thorndyke and I sat down opposite the lawyer and his client, and we mutually inspected one another. Marchmont I already knew, an elderly, professional-looking man, a typical solicitor of the old school, fresh-faced, precise, rather irascible, and conveying a not unpleasant impression of taking a reasonable interest in his diet. The other man was quite young, not more than five-and-twenty, and and was a fine, athletic-looking fellow with a healthy, out-of-door complexion and an intelligent and highly prepossessing face i took a liking to him at the first glance and so i saw did thorndyke you two gentlemen said blackmore addressing us seem to be quite old acquaintances i have heard so much about you from my friend reuben hornby ah exclaimed marchmont that was a queer case the case of the red thumb mark as the papers called it it was an eye-opener to old-fashioned lawyers like myself We've had scientific witnesses before, and bullied properly, by Jove, when they wouldn't give us the evidence that we wanted. But the scientific lawyer is something new. His appearance in court made us all sit up, I can assure you." "'I hope we shall make you sit up again,' said Thorndyke. "'You won't this time,' said Marchmont. "'The issues in this case of my friend Blackmore's are purely legal. Or rather, there are no issues at all. There is nothing in dispute. I tried to prevent Blackmore from consulting you, but he wouldn't listen to reason. Here, waiter! How much longer are we to be waiters? We shall die of old age before we get our victuals!" The waiter smiled apologetically. "'Yes, sir,' said he. "'Coming now, sir.' And at this very moment there was borne into the room a gargantuan pudding in a great bucket of a basin, which, being placed on a three-legged stool, was forthwith attacked ferociously by the white-clothed, white-capped carver. We watched the process, as did every one present, with an interest not entirely gluttonous, for it added a pleasant touch to the picturesque old room, with its sanded floor, its homely pew-like boxes, its high-backed settles, and the friendly portrait of the great lexicographer that beamed down on us from the wall. This is a very different affair from your great, glittering, modern restaurant mr. Marchmont remarked it is indeed said Blackmore and if this is the way in which our ancestors lived it would seem that they had a better idea of comfort than we have there was a short pause during which mr. Marchmont glared hungrily at the pudding then Thorndyke said so you refuse to listen to reason mr. Blackmore yes You see, Mr. Marchmont and his partner had gone into the matter and decided that there was nothing to be done. Then I happened to mention the affair to Reuben Hornby, and he urged me to ask your advice on the case. Like his impudence, growled Marchmont, to meddle with my client. On which, continued Blackmore, I spoke to Mr. Marchmont, and he agreed that it was worth while to take your opinion on the case, though he warned me to cherish no hopes as the affair was not really within your specialty. So you understand, said Marchmont, that we expect nothing. This is quite a forlorn hope. We are taking your opinion as a mere formality to be able to say that we have left nothing untried. That is an encouraging start, Thorndyke remarked. It leaves me unembarrassed by the possibility of failure. But meanwhile, you are arousing in me a devouring curiosity as to the nature of the case. Is it highly confidential? Because if not, I would mention that Jervis has now joined me as my permanent colleague. It isn't confidential at all, said Marchmont. The public are in full possession of the facts, and we should be only too happy to put them in still fuller possession, through the medium of the probate court, if we could find a reasonable pretext. But we can't. Here the waiter charged our table with the fussy rapidity of the overdue. "'Sorry to keep you waiting, sir—rather early, sir—wouldn't like it underdone, sir.' Marchmont inspected his plate critically, and remarked, "'I sometimes suspect these oysters of being mussels, and I'll swear the larks are sparrows.' "'Let us hope so,' said Thorndyke. The lark is better employed at Heaven's Gate singing than garnishing a beefsteak pudding "'But you were telling us about your case.' "'So I was. "'Well, it's just a matter of... "'Ailer Claret? "'Oh, Claret, I know. "'You despise the good old British John Barleycorn.' "'He that drinks beer,' reported Thorndyke. "'But you were saying that it's just a matter of... "'A matter of a perverse testator and an ill-drawn will.' a particularly irritating case too because the defective will replaces a perfectly sound one and the intentions of the testator were er were "Mm, excellent ale this a little heady perhaps but sound better than your sour french wine thorndyke Um, were quite obvious what he evidently desired was mustard better have some mustard no well well even a frenchman would take mustard you can have no appreciation of flavor thorndyke if you take your victuals in that crude unseasoned state and talking of flavor do you suppose that there is really any difference between that of a lark and that of a sparrow thorndyke smiled grimly i should suppose said he that they were indistinguishable but the question could easily be put to the test of experiment that is true agreed marchmont and it would really be worth trying for as you say sparrows are more easily obtainable than lark's but about this will i was saying er now what was i saying i understood you to say replied thorndyke that the intentions of the testator were in some way connected with mustard isn't that so jervis that was what i gathered said i marchmont gazed at us for a moment with a surprised expression and then laughing good-humouredly fortified himself with a draught of ale the moral of which is thorndyke added that testamentary disposition should not be mixed up with beef steak pudding i believe you're right thorndyke said the unabashed solicitor business is business and eating is eating WE HAD BETTER TALK OVER OUR CASE IN MY OFFICE, OR YOUR CHAMBERS AFTER LUNCH. YES, SAID THORNDYKE, COME OVER TO THE TEMPLE WITH ME, AND I WILL GIVE YOU A CUP OF COFFEE TO CLEAR YOUR BRAIN. ARE THERE ANY DOCUMENTS? I HAVE ALL THE PAPERS HERE IN MY BAG, replied MARCHMONT, AND THE CONVERSATION, SUCH CONVERSATION AS POSSIBLE, WHEN BEARDS WAG ALL OVER THE FESTIVE BOARD, DRIFTED INTO OTHER CHANNELS. As soon as the meal was finished, and the reckoning paid, we trooped out of wine-office court, and insinuating ourselves through the line of empty hansoms that, in those days, crawled into continuous procession on either side of Fleet Street, betook ourselves by way of mitre-court to King's Bench Walk. There, when the coffee had been requisitioned and our chairs drawn up around the fire, Mr. Marchmont unloaded from his bag a portentous bundle of papers and we addressed ourselves to the business in hand. Now, said Marchmont, let me repeat what I said before. Legally speaking, we have no case, not the ghost of one. But my client wished to take your opinion, and I agreed on the bare chance that you might detect some point that we had overlooked. I don't think you will, for we have gone into the case very thoroughly, but still. There is the infinitesimal chance, and we may as well take it. WOULD YOU LIKE TO READ THE TWO WILLS, OR SHALL I FIRST EXPLAIN THE CIRCUMSTANCES?" I THINK, REPLIED THORNDYKE, A NARRATIVE OF THE EVENTS IN THE ORDER OF THEIR OCCURRENCE WOULD BE MOST HELPFUL. I SHOULD LIKE TO KNOW AS MUCH AS POSSIBLE ABOUT THE TESTATOR BEFORE I EXAMINE THE DOCUMENTS. VERY WELL, SAID MARCHMONT. THEN I WILL BEGIN WITH A RECITAL OF THE CIRCUMSTANCES. WHICH, BRIEFLY STATED, ARE THESE. My client, Stephen Blackmore, is the son of Mr. Edward Blackmore, deceased. Edward Blackmore had two brothers who survived him, John, the elder, and Geoffrey the younger. Jeffrey is the testator in this case. Some two years ago, Jeffrey Blackmore executed a will by which he made his nephew Stephen his executor and sole legatee, and a few months later he added a codicil, giving 250 pounds to his brother John. "'What was the value of the estate?' Thorndyke asked. "'About three thousand five hundred pounds, all invested in consoles. "'The testator had a pension from the foreign office on which he lived, "'leaving his capital untouched. "'Soon after having made his will, he left the rooms in Jermyn Street, "'where he had lived for some years, stored his furniture, and went to Florence. "'From thence he moved on to Rome, and then to Venice,' and other places in Italy, and so continued to travel about until the end of last September, when it appears that he returned to England, for at the beginning of October he took a set of chambers at New Inn, which he furnished with some of the things from his old rooms. As far as we can make out, he never communicated with any of his friends, excepting his brother, and the fact of his being in residence at New Inn or of his being in England at all, became known to them only when he died. "'Was this quite in accordance with his ordinary habits?' Thorndyke asked. "'I should say not quite,' Blackmore answered. "'My uncle was a studious, solitary man, but he was not formerly a recluse. "'He was not much of a correspondent, but he kept up some sort of communication with his friends. "'He used, for instance, to write to me sometimes.' AND WHEN I CAME DOWN FROM CAMBRIDGE FOR THE VACATIONS, HE HAD ME STAY WITH HIM AT HIS ROOMS. IS THERE ANYTHING KNOWN THAT ACCOUNTS FOR THE CHANGE IN HIS HABITS? YES, THERE IS, REPLIED MARCHMONT. WE SHALL COME TO THAT PRESENTLY. TO PROCEED WITH THE NARRATIVE, ON THE FIFTEENTH OF LAST MARCH HE WAS FOUND DEAD IN HIS CHAMBERS, AND A MORE RECENT WILL WAS THEN DISCOVERED, DATED THE TWELFTH OF NOVEMBER OF LAST YEAR. Now, no change had taken place in the circumstances of the testator to account for the new will, nor was there any appreciable alteration in the disposition of the property. As far as we can make out, the new will was drawn with the idea of stating the intentions of the testator with greater exactness, and for the sake of doing away with the codicil. The entire property, with the exception of 250 pounds, was, as before, bequeathed to Stephen, but the separate items were specified, and the testator's brother, John Blackmore, was named as the executor and residuary legatee. I see, said Thorndike, so that your client's interest in the will would appear to be practically unaffected by the change? Yes, there it is, exclaimed the lawyer, slapping the table to add emphasis to his words. That is the pity of it. If people who have no knowledge of the law would only refrain from tinkering with their wills... What a world of trouble would be saved. Oh, come, said Thorndyke, it's not for a lawyer to say that. No, I suppose not, Marchmont agreed. Only you see, we like the muddle to be made by the other side. But in this case, the muddle is on our side. The change, as you say, seems to leave our friend Stephen's interests unaffected. That is, of course, what poor Geoffrey Blackmore thought. But he was mistaken. The effect of the change is absolutely disastrous. Indeed! Yes, as I have said, no alteration in the testator's circumstances had taken place at the time the new will was executed. But only two days before his death, his sister, Mrs. Edmund Wilson, died, and on her will being proved, it appeared that she had bequeathed to him her entire personality estimated at about thirty thousand pounds. "'Hi-ho!' exclaimed Thorndyke. "'What an unfortunate affair!' "'You are right,' said Mr. Marchmont. "'It was a disaster. By the original will, this great sum would have accrued to our friend Mr. Stephen. Whereas now, of course, it goes to the residuary legatee, Mr. John Blackmore.' And what makes it even more exasperating is the fact that this is obviously not in accordance with the wishes and intentions of Mr. Jeffrey, who clearly desired his nephew to inherit his property. Yes, said Thorndyke. I think you are justified in assuming that, but do you know whether Mr. Jeffrey was aware of his sister's intentions? We think not. Her will was executed as recently as the third of September last. And it seems that there had been no communication between her and Mr. Jeffrey since that date, besides, if you consider Mr. Jeffrey's actions, you will see that they suggest no knowledge or expectation of this very important bequest. A man does not make elaborate dispositions in regard to three thousand pounds and then leave a sum of thirty thousand to be disposed of casually as a residue of the estate. no Thorndyke agreed and, as you have said, the manifest intention of the testator was to leave the bulk of his property to Mr. Stephen. So we may take it as virtually certain that Mr. Jeffrey had no knowledge of the fact that he was a beneficiary under his sister's will." "'Yes,' said Mr. Marchmont, "'I think we may take that as nearly certain.'" "'With reference to the second will,' said Thorndyke, "'I suppose there is no need to ask whether the document itself has been examined.' I mean, as to its being a genuine document, and perfectly regular." Mr. Marchmont shook his head sadly. No, he said, I am sorry to say that there can be no possible doubt as to the authenticity and regularity of the document. The circumstances under which it was executed establish its genuineness beyond any question. What were those circumstances? Thorndyke asked they were these on the morning of the twelfth of november last mr jeffrey came to the porter's lodge with a document in his hand this he said is my will i want you to witness my signature would you mind doing so and can you find another respectable person to ask as a second witness now it happened that a nephew of the porters a painter by trade was at work at the inn the porter went out and fetched him into the lodge, and the two men agreed to witness the signature. "'You had better read the will,' said Mr. Jeffrey. "'It is not actually necessary, but it is an additional safeguard, and there is nothing of a private nature in the document.' The two men accordingly read the document, and, when Mr. Jeffrey had signed it in their presence, they affixed their signatures.' and I may add that the painter left the recognizable impressions of three greasy fingers. And the witnesses have been examined? Yes, they have both sworn to the document, and to their own signatures, and the painter recognized his finger-marks. That, said Thorndyke, seems to dispose pretty effectually of any question as to the genuineness of the will. And if, as I gather, Mr. Jeffrey came to the lodge alone... THE QUESTION OF UNDUE INFLUENCE IS DISPOSED OF, TOO. YES, SAID MR. MARCHMONT, I THINK WE MUST PASS THE WILL AS ABSOLUTELY FLAWLESS. IT STRIKES ME AS RATHER ODD, SAID THORNDYKE, THAT JEFFREY SHOULD HAVE KNOWN SO LITTLE ABOUT HIS SISTER'S INTENTIONS. CAN YOU EXPLAIN IT, MR. BLACKMORE? I DON'T THINK THAT IT'S VERY REMARKABLE, STEPHEN REPLIED. I knew very little of my aunt's affairs, and I don't think my uncle Geoffrey knew much more. For he was under the impression that she had only a life interest in her husband's property. And he may have been right. It is not clear what money this was that she left to my uncle. She was a very taciturn woman, and made few confidences to anyone. "'So it is possible,' said Thorndyke, "'that she herself may have acquired this money recently by some bequest?' It is quite possible, Stephen answered. She died, I understand, said Thorndyke, glancing at the notes that he had jotted down, two days before mr Jeffrey. What date would that be? Jeffrey died on the fourteenth of March, said Marchmont, so that mrs Wilson died on the twelfth of March. That is so, Marchmont replied. And Thorndyke then asked, Did she die suddenly? No, replied stephen, she died of cancer. I understand that it was cancer of the stomach. Do you happen to know, Thorndyke asked, what sort of relations existed between Geoffrey and his brother John? At one time, said stephen, I know they were not very cordial, but the breach may have been made up later, though I don't know what it actually was. I ask the question," said Thorndyke, because, as I dare say you have noticed, there is, in the first will, some hint of improved relations. As it was originally drawn, that will makes Mr. Stephen the sole legatee. Then, a little later, a codicil is added in favor of John, showing that Geoffrey had felt the necessity of making some recognition of his brother. This seems to point to some change in the relations, and the question arises. If such a change did actually occur, was it the beginning of a new and further improving state of feeling between the two brothers? Have you any facts bearing on that question?" Marchmont pursed up his lips with an air of a man considering an unwelcome suggestion, and after a few moments of reflection answered, "'I think we must say yes to that. There is the undeniable fact that, of all Geoffrey's friends, JOHN BLACKMORE WAS THE ONLY ONE WHO KNEW THAT HE WAS LIVING IN NEW INN. OH, JOHN KNEW THAT, DID HE? YES, HE CERTAINLY DID, FOR IT CAME OUT IN THE EVIDENCE THAT HE HAD CALLED ON JEFFREY AT HIS CHAMBERS MORE THAN ONCE. THERE IS NO DENYING THAT. BUT, MARK YOU, MR. MARCHMONT ADDED EMPHATICALLY, THAT DOES NOT COVER THE INCONSISTENCY OF THE WILL. THERE IS NOTHING IN THE SECOND WILL TO SUGGEST THAT JEFFREY INTENDED TO MATERIALLY INCREASE THE BEQUEST TO HIS BROTHER. I QUITE AGREE WITH YOU, MARCHMONT. I THINK THAT IS A PERFECTLY SOUND POSITION. YOU HAVE, I SUPPOSE, FULLY CONSIDERED THE QUESTION AS TO WHETHER IT WOULD BE POSSIBLE TO SET ASIDE THE SECOND WILL ON THE GROUND THAT IT FAILS TO CARRY OUT THE EVIDENT WISHES AND INTENTIONS OF THE TESTATOR? YES. MY PARTNER, WINWOOD, AND I WENT INTO THAT QUESTION VERY CAREFULLY and we also took counsel's opinion, Sir Horace Barnaby, and he was of the same opinion as ourselves, that the court would certainly uphold the will. I think that would be my own view, said Thorndyke, especially after what you have told me. Do I understand that John Blackmore was the only person who knew that Geoffrey was in residence at New Inn? The only one of his private friends. His bankers knew, and so did the officials from whom he drew his pension. Of course, he would have to notify his bankers of his change of address. Yes, of course, and apropos of the bank, I may mention that the manager tells me that, of late, they had noticed a slight change in the character of Jeffrey's signature. I think you will see the reason of the change when you hear the rest of the story. It was very trifling not more than commonly occurs when a man begins to go old, especially if there is some failure of eyesight." "'Was Mr. Jeffrey's eyesight failing?' asked Thorndyke. "'Yes, it was, undoubtedly,' said Stephen. "'He was practically blind in one eye, and in the very last letter that I ever had from him he mentioned that there were signs of commencing cataract in the other. "'You spoke of his pension. He continued to draw that regularly?' Yes, he drew his allowance every month, or, rather, his bankers drew it for him. They had been accustomed to do so when he was abroad, and the authorities seemed to have allowed the practice to continue. Thorndike reflected a while, running his eye over the notes on the slips of paper in his hand, and Marchmont surveyed him with a malicious smile. Presently the latter remarked, Methinks the learned counsel is floored, thorndyke laughed it seems to me he retorted that your proceedings are rather like those of the amiable individual who offered the bear a flint pebble that he might crack it and extract the kernel. your confounded will seems to offer no soft spot on which one could commence an attack but we won't give up we seem to have sucked the will dry let us now have a few facts reflecting the parties concerned in it and." As Geoffrey is a central figure let us begin with him and the tragedy at New Inn that formed the starting point of all this trouble End of chapter 5